What we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks is we, we entitled the, this series A Changed Man. And we're in the changed man business. Now, we're in the changed woman and the changed student and the changed kid business too. Yes and amen. But we're talking about Paul and Ron Gibson and they're men. So we're talking about a changed man. And we are in the changed man business. In fact, the reason we start out our January series with baptisms in the service is because we want to celebrate the life change that God is bringing in this place. And what we'll look at for three weeks is we'll look at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 is going to share his story. He's on trial before King Agrippa, and basically he's going to say, this is what my life was like before I met Jesus. This is how I surrendered my life to Christ, and now this is what my life looks like after surrendering my life to Christ. Now, if that sounds kind of familiar to you, it's because that's the way we set up every baptism video. So, so the people that are going to step down into this water and be baptized and publicly profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the people that are going to say that God has changed my life, they say, my life used to be like this, this is how I met Christ, and this is what my life's been like since then. Now, I've got to give you some warning here, is that today, all we're going to do is the first part of that, just the life before Christ. We're going to see how Paul was before he met Jesus. So the gospel means good news, but good news enters into bad places. So if you thought, you know what, I'm going to kick off the new year by going to church and feeling good about myself, you've come to the wrong church. You've got to come back next week. It gets way better next week. But this week is just really the diagnosis because we are in the changed man business. What we do as a church, we're a movement for all people. For those of you that think you're really good and you grew up in church your whole life, this is your church. And for those of you that think you're really bad and you've got no shot, this is your church. That we're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says it this way. And just a warning, every January I reread Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So for the next three weeks, get ready for a lot of Lewis quotes. But here's what he says. He says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became a man for no other purpose. You see, we are in the change man business. What we hope happens to you, if you don't know him yet, is that Christ would draw you unto himself and that you would be discipled to be more like Jesus. So that's what this entire series is all about. In fact, if you would come to church and stay for like six hours, I could just, it's like one big continuous sermon all throughout the series. So I need you to be here just for three weeks. Just come for these three weeks. And if you don't like our church after that, go to another one or go fishing again. Whatever you want to do, I don't care. But for this three weeks, I want you to be committed to be here so that you can get all three sections of it. All right, here we go. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> so Paul, so Agrippa said to Paul, again, Agrippa's the king, Paul's on trial. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, this really isn't part of the sermon. It's just kind of an aside, but check this out. Do you see how, do you see how respectful the Apostle Paul is? I mean, the Apostle Paul is a man of honor, that he understands that he is supposed to honor particularly people in authority over him, even if they disagree with him, even if they have the power of life and death over him. And so I want the church of 1122 to be a place of honor, where we outdo one another in honor. And if you're my age or younger, 40 and under crowd, we operate at an honor deficit. 
Somehow, uh, cynicism and sarcasm became more important than honor. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. So let me just say this. If you're in the 60 and up crowd and you're, and you're an active attender or, or participant in the church of 1122, the 60 and up crowd, thank you for being here and we need you. First of all, you make us a legit church. Because if you're not here, we're just like an old worn out youth group. That's all 1122 is. All right? It's kind of sad. But with you here, you legitimize us and we need you. We need you to pour into us some of that that you have that's all about respect and honor. And so we thank you for being here. We need you here. We need you to not just look at the 40 and under crowd and think, uh, we need you to pour into us. In fact, one of the reasons we don't do like, age-graded disciple groups is because I need the 2030s and 40s rubbing elbows with the 50s, 60s, and 70s because we have a lot to learn. So this is going to be a place of honor. I mean, my children say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. And if they don't, I need to know about it, okay? Second grade teachers, thank you. Because we're going to have a house of honor, and we're going to have a culture of honor, and that's also in our church. And so if you're going to be a part of the church of 1122, this is going to be a place of honor. That means that, that we need to honor our neighbors. And we need to honor our teachers and our bosses and our coaches and, and our elected officials. And this is going to be a place of honor. All right, now back to the sermon. Verse 4. So Paul, here he goes. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. In other words, everything I'm about to tell you, King Agrippa, all the Jewish people here, they know about. Because the same thing is true of Paul that's true of you. Your life is on display for the whole world to see. So Paul's saying, I grew up with these cats. They know my testimony. They know what I'm all about. Do you realize that your life is on display? If you call yourself a Christian, but your life doesn't back it up, nobody believes what you're saying about you. That, that your life is on display for this world to see. So if you checked in as your status update that you're attending the church of 1122 today, but none of the other statuses point to the fact that you love Jesus, then nobody cares what you're saying that our lives are on display for this world to see. If, your word, if you want your words about Jesus to be important, then your lifestyle better be backing it up. And now what Paul's gonna do from here on is he's gonna lay out what his life was like before Jesus. And, it, and it's not gonna be pretty because here's what's true about Paul, what's true about me, and what's true about you is that we all reject God. Every single one of us in this place we reject God. And when we reject God, we tend to turn to, to, generally speaking, one of four avenues or pathways to walk down. So here's what Paul says in verse 5. He says, They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And what Paul will do for the next few verses is he's going to walk through how he rejected God and, do, and the things that he turned to as a functional Savior in his life. Now, what I love about Paul's story is that very generally speaking, when we reject God, we tend to either turn to rebellion, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, we'll talk about that in a little while, or we turn to religion. So we either turn to, I'm going to be bad, God, I don't need you, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, and you can't tell me what to do, you ain't the boss of me. Or we turn to, I don't need you because I have good Sunday school attendance, so I'm not in need of a savior. And so Paul is like both of those people in one person. So listen, no matter how good you think you are, Paul's better than you. He is. He was more holy than you. And no matter how bad you think you've been, Paul's worse than you. And he needed a savior, and so do you. 
So Paul says that essentially he rejects God and he turns to some other things. In this case, a Pharisee. And so I want to talk to you about some of the things that we tend to turn to. Because the truth is, and I know it's hard for some of us to grab onto, but we've all rejected God. We've all rejected God. And some of you, some of you, when you hear that, you go, amen. And then others of you go, "Ah, how dare he? I am a snowflake. I am a rainbow. How dare you curse this precious face of mine? Well, here's just the the real deal. This may sting a little, but you're not a snowflake. Uh, You're not a rainbow. You are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. Yeah, an enemy of the Almighty God. And, 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 here's, and you know this intuitively. I know you don't think it about you, but to all the parents, to the parents that have raised somebody up into their twos, is sin inherited or a learned behavior? It's inherited. Okay, in my home, I live with the most adorable, precious, cutest, wretched, black-hearted sinner that you've ever seen in your life. All right, and her cuteness does not take her sin away. Now, yes and amen, she's fearfully and wonderfully made and created in the image of God. Yes and amen, and she's wretched, wretched, and sin is just in her. Parents, are you with me on this? Did you teach your kid to bite? Have you ever gone to your husband and said, I said, put your shoes away, Ah, and just bite them? But Reagan Capri will. She will just bite JP, take what he has, and run. We all know this. It's just in there. Did you teach your children to lie? Did you say, okay, here's how you lie? Because my kid's a liar. She is. She'll be standing in the pantry with chocolate on her face. Reagan, did you eat the chocolate? Mm-mm, wasn't me. It's on your face. It was JP. So what you're saying is JP came in, ate the chocolate, and then smeared it on your face. I don't know. Nobody has to teach anyone to do this. Are you with me, parents? Can I get a witness? Amen. All right. Yeah. And don't you love when the the single people that don't have kids in here yet, you're going, my kid will not act that way. (laughs) Or even better, parents, don't you hate when some people go, oh, yeah, we have a puppy. We know what it's like. Oh, yeah. Okay. Can't wait till your kid cusses you. That's going to be awesome. So, now, now, we, again, we live in a culture that's like, how dare you say that? Because, listen, my little snowflake just needs to follow his heart. You know what JP, I mean, not JP, you know what Jesus says about, <laughs> you know what Jesus says about your heart in Mark, in Mark chapter 7? Jesus says, for out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You see, well, following your heart will get you some bad places. You see, the heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. And God doesn't want to just try to make your heart a little better. Actually, he wants to kill it and give you his heart. It's a total transformation. We're not talking about bad people becoming good. We're talking about dead people that need to come to life. And so we all reject God. Just in case uh, you didn't even open up your notes, on the front of your notes, we put a verse, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, because we wanted you to see this. The Bible says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so, the thing is though, you don't reject God and just stay in neutral. When you turn your back on God, when you say, God, I don't need you, you tend to turn to something else. And one of the things, one of the first things that we turn to is we turn to ourselves. We turn to ourselves, especially in January. 
And we turn it back on God and say, no, I know what is going to, what is going to meet the deep longings of my soul is a better version of me. A smarter, m- better educated, thinner person with a date version of me. And when I get me all together, then I'll be fully and finally satisfied. I hope and pray you're not going down that road again. Because let's, let's just be honest. Or, you know, pretend like it's not church and you can tell the truth. Is, is this, have, have you made New Year's resolutions? Because I did. Raise your hand if you made them. Come on, it's okay. I'm in, I'm in there. I'm trying, trying to lose a few pounds before our beach baptism because of the pictures and stuff, okay? So, are you kidding? All right, and so, I'm with you. All right, so work out. But, but here's the thing. If you think that's going to fully and finally satisfy you, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The, the, the fact that you go into Barnes & Noble and the biggest section is the self-help section, it's a crock. You know why? Because if you go in and you think six-minute abs are going to cure you, do you not realize that yourself is what got you in the problem? How do you think you're going to be the one to get you out of the problem? You're the problem. It's like the guy that's in the gym right now, which there are a lot of them this week, right? And they, they hadn't been there in the year, and they come waddling on up and put, put too much weight on there to try to show off, all right? And then they get under that bench, and they try to bench it, and, and it's just not going. How, how much good does it do for me to walk by and go, push harder? Oh, okay, my bad. It's just, it's not, it's not going to happen. You got to have a spot. You got to have somebody outside of you to do for you what you can't do. Because you got yourself stuck under the weight to begin with. That's why the self-help books are ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so we think, hey, if I could just lose weight, if I could just get that job, if I could just look this way, all right? You know, girls, if, if my hair would just be curlier, if you got curly hair, if my hair would just be straight, whichever, whatever that conundrum's all about, okay? <laughs> you, if, if I could just then, well, you've been there before. And how'd that work out for you? And here's how I know. Think about this. 10 years ago, 10 years ago, you thought that you now was going to be awesome. Well, here you are. A little disappointing, isn't it? And even if you got it all right, I mean, even if in six months from now, you're walking around and you're just ripped with cash just falling out of your pockets, with dates lined up, or your marriage is awesome, or your kids are on honor roll, or whatever it is, it would never fully and finally satisfy. Because the problem is still you. And so when you try to turn to yourself to, to, try to, to try to just make a better version of you, and now listen, I'm not saying be lazy for the sake of the gospel, all right? Listen to me, 20-year-olds. Don't you blame your laziness and slothfulness on the gospel. It will not receive it. It will not take that, okay? You work your tail off, and, and you could be. I hope you do get smarter and better educated and thinner and make more money for the glory of God, but money and abs and relationships make terrible gods, because they're temporary, and we're to worship the one true God. So sometimes we reject God and we turn to ourselves. What Paul did by going to Pharisee school is Paul rejects God and he turns to religion. And, and turning to religion as a substitute for God is really just um, self-improvement in a choir robe. It's just self-improvement with religious activity instead of external activities, isn't it? And so it's very, very tempting. It, it, it happens all the time. And people say, um, essentially, God, I don't need you because I can be good enough. I can be good enough on my own. And so depending on what kind of denomination you come from or what kind of religion you are a part of, you come up with the list, you know, the pastor, the clergy, or whoever says, okay, to be a good Christian, here's the things that you do, and here's the thing that you don't do. And even if you begin to think that there is such a thing as a good Christian, it's evidence that you don't know the gospel. 
Because again, it's not about bad people being good. It's about dead people coming to life. It's about total transformation, not just a makeover. And so I grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I was ordained Southern Baptist, and, and I'm currently a recovering Baptist, all right? So can I get a witness? Okay? Anybody said amen? It's not a Baptist because you don't talk. You don't talk in church, all right? So, so if you go down this religious road, it's just exhausting. And the reason it's exhausting because you come to church and they give you the list. Here's what good Christians do. Here's what good Christians don't do. So the list I grew up with was good Christians don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. That was it. That was our list. We didn't need 10 commandments. We had four, and that was the list. And as long as you could obey those four commandments, then you were a good Christian. And so I remember looking around Dillon, South Carolina, and think, well, I guess I'll never get married because every girl I know here chews, right? I mean, the prom queen's like, hey. So that was it. And so I kind of came up in this culture of external religious fundamentalism that good Christians do a quiet time and don't listen to secular mu- uh, music and, and don't cuss and there's no dancing, right? We were Southern Baptists, there was no dancing. In fact, that's why Southern Baptists don't believe in premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. That's, that's the real danger. <laughs> and you see, sin's right there in the word. Dance sin, you see? He's gonna get you. And so I was a part of youth groups that would, that would be told we gotta turn from secular music. It's what's killing our generation. I'd be like, amen, what's secular music? journey what yeah next week we're bringing all of our metallica and guns and roses records and we're gonna burn them at the cross i was like "Uh uh-uh it's not me and i would show up and kids are throwing their records into the fire and i'm going dude that's metallica i'll take that right and then you'd have that one like overzealous kid and you'd be like did you hear it i could hear the demon coming out of it it went I say, dude, you'd hiss too if I catch you on fire. What is wrong with you people? And then the only difference is, I mean, we laugh, but, but you just make up whatever your list is. And if you get off the list, you're, you're a bad Christian or a sinner. And you need to repent, rededicate your life, you backslider. But where I grew up, oh, you could be a racist and prideful and a glutton. But that wasn't on the list. So that, that was all fine. And let me tell you, if you pursue this outside in, I'm going to do good things to appease you, God, to tilt the scale in my favor. By the way, there's no scale. There is no scale. There's dead and there's alive. And let me tell you the results. It's exhausting. I mean, it is exhausting. If you, by your own willpower, try to grab hold to whatever the sin is that you struggle with, and you just, by external effort and your own will, you try to hold that sin at bay. Man, you could do it for a little while. You could stop cussing for a little while. You could stop lusting for a minute. And you just hold that thing down here by your own power. And I'm telling you, it is exhausting. And part of the thing that's exhausting is you got to fake it for the rest of your life. I mean, when somebody asks you, you show up to church and you have to put on that fake smile. And when people say, how you doing? You just have to lie. Because you know you're struggling like crazy. Because you haven't been drinking lately. But gosh, you want to because it looks like it's so much fun. And so you have to lie and say, you know what, I'm just blessed. Just praise God, I'm blessed. Really? Because you look terrible. Oh, no, the Lord's just been finding me with the fire. You know, you make up stupid stuff. You don't even know what it means. It's just exhausting because you're, you're trying to obey this arbitrary set of rules. And the other thing, not only is it exhausting personally because you can't just be open and honest that, that, that you needed a Savior, 
and you do have struggles, and you become incredibly jealous of the people of this world, why are you not in church? Why are, how do you get, the, how do you get a, a raise, and you don't attend church like I attend church, and it just fuels that pride? Or you look, and you see, and, and it looks like all your friends are having so much fun, and you're like, why do you get to drink beer? I don't get to drink beer. My pastor said I couldn't drink beer. Oh, oh I think I have a cold. I'll have NyQuil, a lot, a lot of NyQuil, and you go down that ridiculous path. You see, Christ came to set us free, that we would be free indeed, that, that, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he came, he's a good shepherd, he wants to give us abundant life, and religion leads to bondage. I mean, you chase that thing down, and you'll just be doing some goofy stuff that you think impresses God, like with some kind of weird wardrobe or some kind of made-up rules. And many people turn their back on God and say, I don't need you, I have church attendance. I've done what they've asked me to do. I don't need the sacrificial atoning death of your son. I've got this. And, I, and I'm just going to tell you, it just, it just leads you to a place of bondage. It's what happened to the Pharisees. Look, when the Pharisees first started out, it's a legit group of people. What Pharisee means is separated. Their idea was we're going to be separated from this world. We are going to study the scripture so well that, in, in fact, when the Pharisees would go through school, they would go through, I mean, just levels and levels and levels and levels of school. And they would memorize the entire Old Testament, the whole thing, from Genesis to Malachi, the whole thing. That you could quote any verse in the Old Testament and they could tell you the verse before and after it. So you think you're a pretty good Christian because you've memorized four verses out of Romans? Paul's way better than you. Memorize the whole thing. And then, not only did they try to obey the commandments to stay ceremonially pure, but they made up extra commandments just to make sure they didn't break the actual commandments. They were professional do-gooders. And the reason the Pharisees were professional do-gooders, the reason they wanted to be separated from this world is so that they would be so ceremonially clean that when the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, when he showed up on the scene, they would be the first group of people to recognize him. How'd that work out? The Son of God was standing in their midst and they could not see a relationship with Jesus because all they could see was the rules. That's the pursuit of religion. That's the pursuit of religion. And so that's what Paul says. Paul says, basically, I turned my back on God and I was pursuing these rules about this religion. Verse six, it says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. In other words, um, king, what happened, the reason these religious Pharisees and Sadducees are angry with me is because I traded in the rules for a relationship with the risen Savior. And any time that happens, religious people get angry because you start walking in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. And it freaks religious people out because they want to keep you hemmed in to these set of rules and regulations And what Paul's saying is, look, these brothers of mine have missed out on the one true God because they were more concerned about the rules instead of that those rules were supposed to set us up to have a relationship with him. Look, you want to ruin your relationships with religious people? Get close to Jesus. Every time in the New Testament Jesus changes someone's life, religious people get angry about it. That's why here we celebrate life change. We don't try to put lids on it. And so sometimes people reject God, they turn to themselves. Sometimes people reject God, they turn to religion. He goes on to say, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Verse nine, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
and I did so in Jerusalem. I'd only, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. So you, you think you're bad? Paul's worse. You think you've sinned? Listen, you have. You think it's a big deal? It's worse than you think. That our sin is so bad that it crucified the, the perfect son of God. But if Paul were to walk in here right now and you and Paul were to begin to compare sins, Paul was a religious terrorist that killed Christians. And so if, if he were to say, so, so what's the biggest sin you're struggling with? And, and you were to say, well, you know what? I lie and I kind of cheat. And he'd go, oh, okay, well, I kill Christians, so I think I win. So no matter how bad you think you are, Paul's worse. And he's still not disqualified from salvation, from being adopted into the family of God. So what many of us do, especially in our church, what many of us have done is reject God and turn to the things of this world. And and I mean the crooked and depraved things of this world. Like when you think old school sin, not just one syllable sin, but that three syllable sin, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of sin, like sex, drugs, rock and roll sin, all mixed together in one big sin, pot, that kind of thing. That often we reject God, God, you ain't a boss of me. I don't need you. I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want. And I'm going to chase after the temporary pleasures of this world. And I don't care about the consequences it has on me or my body or my family or the people that love me and those that are around me. That many people, many people reject God and turn to just the crooked things of this world. And you ask any person that's in recovery. It was a slippery slope. They got what they thought was going to be fun They ended up entangled in sin, and it leads to death. They say, but I don't understand. You know, I watched the beer commercial, and I thought if I just drink a little bit of that beer, especially light beer, then um, I would get thin, and hot chicks would want to play volleyball with me. But that is not the way it happened. What I began to consume for fun began to consume me, and I was an addict. You see, let me tell you, here's the thing about temptation. I don't know if you've picked up on this. It's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting, that you and I have a spiritual enemy and he is trying to lure you into temptation because he wants to kill you. And so the things that seem like a temporary good time can lead you to places that you never wanted to go. And it's because the enemy wants to lure you. Look, when I go bass fishing, you know what I do? I use a lure. Get up in the morning, go to the tackle box, open it up. Everybody knows a top water plug in the morning is the best thing to use. So I tie on a hula popper, go out to the lake, and throw that lure out there. And boom, boom, try to make it look real, right? And Big Billy Bass is sitting there, and when that hula popper goes by, he might look at it and go, nah, I don't want that. And so drag it on by, and, and what do you do if it doesn't work the first time? You try to get a little bit closer, a little bit closer, but eventually you give up on that lure, and you cut that one, and you go, no, 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 plastic worm. All right, going to put a plastic worm on there. Then you throw that little black worm out there in front of him and you just make it jiggle a little bit. And you know what that big billy bass thing? He thinks, man, that looks like a good worm. And you know what he does? Because it's a lure, he thinks. He goes to bite it and he goes, yes, no, and he's out. (laughs) That's what happens to you and me and sin. That the enemy is trying to lure you into a place that you don't want to go. And so the thing, what we try to do here at the Church of 1122 is we don't just try to elevate one lure above the other lure. They're all just lures that the enemy tries to use. And so regardless of your temptation, then you need Jesus, and I need Jesus. 
And some things aren't tempting for some of us. Like I can drink a beer and I don't want to have 14 and through a funnel and take my shirt off at a game. And that's just not, it's not, a, it's not a temptation for me. Or like all through school and all that, I've never done drugs. Drugs just were never a temptation for me. People would offer them to me and I would look at the guy offering it and think, well, if that's what I turn out with, I don't think I'm going to do that. All right, you and your skinny friends, get in your van. We'll see you later, Scooby. I'm going to go to football practice. That was just me. But for some of you, when that little it comes by, you think, well, but now there's a dozen other lures that you, you, drop, you put in front of my face. And I go, that's a good looking worm. Okay? So many of us reject God and turn to the dark things of this world. And then some of us, and this is a really dangerous crowd. Some of you are not me. I'm good. I don't do that stuff. So what, what we do is we reject God and we turn to the shiny things of this world. The cash and prizes of this world. I'll just work a little harder, make a little more money, get a bigger house, get a nicer car. And those are the things that will satisfy the deep longings of my soul. I like to call that pursuit the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Because you think the stuff that you have right now won't satisfy your soul. So I know more of the same stuff, different model and different color, and then I'll be fully and finally satisfied. Do you know how ridiculous that pursuit is? You can see it in everybody else. And we can't see it in ourselves, which is crazy, right? How many VH1 behind the musics do you have to watch to understand turning this world's not going to work? But there's still something in us. And there's something in you when you, put on, when you put on a new shirt, some new clothes, don't you just feel like a better person? You walk into that dressing room and you've got on your clothes that used to make you feel good about you. Remember those clothes? And you look at yourself in the mirror and you be like, what is wrong with these clothes? They are frumpy. They are out of season. I thought deer had seasons. I didn't know clothes had seasons, but they are not in the right season. And so you take them off with vengeance. You're like, get in a pile, you sorry clothes. And then you put on your new clothes and you're like, I am a new man. No, you're not. But you'll do another lap of stupidity. You know, just a cul-de-sac. Here we go. Let's take another lap. If I could just have one more bedroom and a half bath, then. Right? Or you think, you, you let the shiny things of this world play much too large a role. You think, if I could just drive that car. And guys, I've told you the silliness of the, of the car pursuit, right? You get you one of those little, little fast cars. If you're old enough to afford it, you look goofy driving it, all right? You just do. You're like, oh, look at granddad in the sports car. I'm just telling you. And then if you're young enough to look cool, everybody thinks it's your mom's. So you're a loser that you're worse. That's worse. Ha <laughs> <laughs> your mom let her take out your car. That's awesome, okay? It's just, it's a pursuit of futility. And yet, and yet, the enemy dangles, dangles the shiny things of this world. I'm telling you, here, regardless all of that stuff that you're pursuing, I mean the clothes and the, the house and the car, all of that stuff that you think is going to do something for your soul, one day it will all be put into a big pile and sold in a garage sale. Unless you're rich, it'll be an estate sale. But it's the same pile of junk. And look, I'm not anti-stuff. Get you some stuff. I like stuff. If it's camouflage, I love stuff. All right, I've got a garage full of camouflage stuff. So I'm okay with stuff, but stuff makes a terrible God. And, and I, don't, I don't know if you've clued into this yet, but maybe if the things of this world don't satisfy the longings of your soul, then it's evidence that you and I were made for more than this world. And so many people reject God and they turn to the things of this world. So what Paul does is he turns to rebellion and being bad. 
I mean, religious terrorists killing Christians because he wanted to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And, and he wasn't going to listen to an almighty God. Verse 12. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So sometimes we reject God and we turn to ourselves. Sometimes we reject God, turn to religion. Sometimes we reject God and turn to the world, whether the dark things or the shiny things of this world. And sometimes this one is is maybe the most prevalent in our culture, is that we reject God and we turn to other people. Paul says, I wasn't alone. I had the approval of the chief priest. Sometimes we reject God and we turn to the approval of others. Instead of the the only one that matters if he approves. And essentially what we do is we take the the keys to our contentment and we hand them out to all the people in our lives. And we say, okay, people, broken people, once you begin to act perfect and treat me perfectly, then I'll be fully and finally satisfied. So here you go, coach. Here you go, teacher. Here you go, spouse. Here you go, boss. Here you go, kids. And I'm more concerned about what you think of me than anything else. And, And I'm just telling you, People make a terrible God. I've been married for almost 14 years. I love Gretchen more now than I ever have. Our marriage is awesome. She's amazing. She's the perfect one for me. She'd make a terrible God. A terrible God. Because she's temporary. Just listen to me. Jerry Maguire is a liar. Okay? There's no person that's going to complete you. Now, are they a helpmate? Yes. Till death do us part? Absolutely. Should you grow in intimacy? Praise God, yes, and amen. But but wives make a terrible God. Ladies, men make, I can't even say it with a straight face, men make a terrible God, amen? (laughs) Other people, the approval of other people, terrible God. Parents, your children make a terrible God. And one of the worst things that you could do as a parent is say that God is the most important thing in your life and then act like your children are God and the whole world revolves around them. The best thing you could do is let your children see you worship the one true God. And so the key is to take all those keys of your own contentment back and learn what Paul learned, the secret of being content in every situation. And the secret's not really that big of a secret anymore. It's Jesus. And that you would take all that and you would put it in his hands instead of the approval of other people. And so we all, the truth is, is that we all reject God. Every single one of us. That we turn our back on God and we put our faith, our hope, our trust in other things. In the things of this world, in other people, in religion, or even bettering ourselves. That's just the condition of our soul. And so the question is, what what can be done about it? I mean, are you saying that we're just all damned to hell? Yeah, pretty much. That's what I'm saying. Unless, unless there's good news to enter the bad place. Unless there's a gospel to come in and do something about the diagnosis. Now, if I were you, and, and you know, I haven't been to church in a while, and I just started showing back up, I might go, objection. Um, I haven't rejected God, all right? I'm a good dude. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not a saint, right? Uh, but I'm from the South, so... I grew up in church. Who didn't grow up in church? And I went to camp and VBS and I prayed some prayers and clapped and sang some songs. And then, you know, yes, I had the debauchery, sex, drug, and rock and roll that we all call college. Yeah, I did that for a little while. And, but now, look, I'm back. I mean, I'm here and I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm not like Saul of Tarsus that was killing Christians. I get up every day. I pay my taxes. I work. I'm a good dude. So I haven't rejected God. And, and I get you. I, I understand where you're coming from. But C.S. Lewis would say this. He says, it may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. 
it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present. And if you and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg, we must be hatched or go bad. That there is no neutral. To put your faith, hope, and trust in anything except the one true God is a rejection of him. And that C.S. Lewis would say, and you're kind of like an egg. What God desires for you, what God has provided for you, is a way to hatch, to be transformed from an egg to a bird, to, to launch out from the nest and fly and live in the freedom that he has created and purchased for you. The other alternative is if you're just going to try to remain neutral, is death. That like an egg, you spoil. So, so here's the opportunity. Here's the point. That to all who have rejected God in the past, and that's every single one of us, me included. In fact, I'm the chief among sinners in this room. I'm the worst one in this room, and he made a way for me. So to all who have rejected God in the past, then you were invited to receive God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there's an old church word that doesn't get preached a whole lot anymore, and it's called repentance. Repent. It's a directional term. And essentially what repent means is that, that it's from going this way that you turn 180 and you go the other way. And that you're currently on a path that turns your back towards God and your face towards the things of this world. Whatever it is, whether it's you or religion or the things that we talked about. And that you, by faith in Christ, can repent. That you can just turn around. And instead of rejecting God, that you could receive Him by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And today, I want to give you the opportunity to not reject God, but to receive Him. And some of you today are going to do that. And, I, and, and you would say, well, what do I have to do? And quickly, I would just tell you, it's already been done. That if you say, all right, look, I, I want to I repent. I want to turn towards God, and I want to receive him. I don't want to reject him anymore. Okay, Jesus, so what do I do? And Jesus would say to you, it has been done. It is finished. And you say, no, 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 I don't think you understand. Um, there's a lot of rejection that I got to make up for. Jesus would say to you, but the whole point is, I did it all on the cross. So that all you would do is just receive it that you would surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. And let me tell you something beautiful and amazing about the gospel, that you don't even have to know how it works to know that it works. Like a thousand years ago, men and women didn't know about proteins and amino acids and carbohydrates. All they knew is that they were hungry, and if they ate, it would fill them and sustain them. Next week, we're going to talk about redemption and substitutionary atonement and how you can be saved. This week, you're invited to put your faith in Christ Jesus, to repent to turn from rejecting God and make an about face and to receive his love and his grace and his mercy by surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not by anything external. Not by becoming a better version of you. Not by pursuing uh, religious exercises. Not by, definitely not by turning to the things of this world or turning to the people of this world. But turning to God and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. Would you please bow your head right where you are? And if that's you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you know in this moment that, that up to this point you have rejected God and you don't, want to, you don't want to reject Him, and even if you don't have all your questions answered or all your doubts figured out, but in this moment you would like to receive grace and the forgiveness of Christ that He poured out for you on the cross and that He stamped forever finished by His resurrection. And today, you would like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you raise your hand and say, I surrender my life. And for those of you with your hands up, you pray. 
And you just pray whatever the words are that God leads you to pray. There's not a magic prayer. There's not like a special chant. It's none of that. But that you would just admit to the Lord that you know that you've rejected him. That you believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That he purchased for you forgiveness on that cross. And this day you confess him as Lord and no longer you. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that today there's salvation in this place. God, we thank you and we love you because you first loved us. God, I thank you that you demonstrated your love for us in this. That while we were yet still sinners, Christ, that you died for us. Lord, I pray for those of us that have been walking with you for a while that we would continuously, daily deny ourselves, take up our cross, repent from the rejection of you and turn to the receiving of you on a daily basis. God, I pray that this will be a church where everybody knows that the fake you is doing just fine, the real you can step up. That, God, we've all been outed by the cross. That our struggles are evidence that we needed a Savior. And, God, we thank you that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And so, God, we love you. We love you. We love you because you first love us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? Stand for our time of response. Worship is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. And so if you're a regular attender here, we respond in worship to God by giving of our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around the room or the giving kiosk in the back. Many of us are invited to respond by coming to the altar and casting all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And we all join our voices together and respond by singing to our good and great God. Let us respond.